Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. We've got a sponsor for you this week. This week's episode is sponsored by Status. Status app lets you chat, browse, and transact on the Ethereum blockchain. Take control of your own private secure messaging, use dApps on mobile, and secure your assets. Download the app today where you get your mobile apps or at statusim slash get. That's statusim slash G-E-T. The Bitcoin podcast will also be in the TBP channel of the Status app to give out a little SMT and let you play around with these features and start chatting privately today. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Hey everybody, welcome back to Hashing It Out. I'm your host today, Dr. Corey Petty with Colin Couchet. Say what's up everybody, Colin. What's up everybody, Colin? Nice, nice and simple. Nice. Uh, today, nice. we're talking with Alex Mesmej. Mesmej, hope I said that correctly this time. Mesmej. Nice, did it right. I love that about kind of like this industry as a whole, or like kind of the decentralized technology industry is this like real global nature of, of the type of people you get to meet and my uh, attempts to pronunciate all of their names. So, uh, yeah, just give us the quick introduction because you're you're kind of involved in, in quite a few things. Um, where'd you come from? What are you doing? And then we'll just dig into kind of the weeds of these various things as we go on. Sure, sure. Thank you for bringing me on. So my name is Alex Mesmej. I am from Paris. And so I've been really involved in the Ethereum application layers. And so by application, I mostly uh, think about DAOs and the apps, so like applications on Ethereum. And so I am a core member of MetaCartel DAO, which is basically investing in uh, Ethereum startups. Uh, I'm also the founder of Rocket, and uh, which I can talk about later, which is Loans Against NFT. And then I'm also a founding member of Marketing DAO, which aim to grow Ethereum as a brand. So these are like my three projects right now. And uh, yeah, that's about it. So Ethereum application layer. All right. So before we get into this, uh, each individual project, uh, I'm kind of curious about the current uh, sentiment of those that are focusing on the application layer, because um, that audience is a is a, is a dynamic target, right? Who you're trying to reach and what you're assuming they're capable of doing changes drastically with the underlying available useful technology. How does how does an application layer does that person focused on the application layer deal with that? So I think one key thing that uh, we learn collectively as a community, whether MetaCartel or my other projects, is that we try to keep it simple. So yes, it is technical. There are some friction. Uh, we uh, assume that the users, they know how to use MetaMask, they, they understand private key, they understand how to move funds around. So it's it's kind of like, uh, more than the average, I think, consumer applications. Like we expect, I think we call this persona crypto natives, yeah. which crypto are the enthusiasts. people who know how to use a wallet, uh, who are enthusiastic. Uh, they understand what DAO means, uh, which is kind of hard, you know, self-sovereign community, doesn't ring a bell to everybody. Um, so yeah, we expect a fair level of education on crypto, the basics of crypto, transferring funds, locking, staking, uh, a DAO, voting shares, etc. All of this jargon, I think we expect them to know because we think this category will expand uh, on one end and on the other end, we will simplify our offering as well. And how does that change over time as like new technology is being developed? Is there a specific uh, green pasture that you see in the near future that helps you helps facilitate you building um, or like expanding the audience of who you're building applications for? So yes, so uh, so far the crypto natives has been probably like at most one or two million people, perhaps more. So it's it's kind of a small niche right now. And to be fully honest, with the macro environment and you know the financial crash and stuff, people are starting to move away from the crypto natives slightly because we need to you know reach more the mainstream and perhaps like the crazy you know long term projects uh, will be on the sidelines for a while. 
and so why we focus more on you know imminent mainstream use cases. But uh, the I think this category is growing. Crypto natives are growing. Uh, more people know how to use the basic frameworks. They are getting easier as well. So like like this is the application layer, but there are also the infrastructure layer, the blockchain layer, and all of this is scaling. Uh, there's privacy. There's user experience. All of these stacks evolving also help us because we are like so up into the stack. Uh, so we are waiting on other components like this to expand the market. So I would say, yes, the market is expanding. Uh, it's been going great. However, we might, you know, temporarily switch our focus because we have such trusting times right now with, you know, the coronavirus and everything. So uh, it's a really uh, like the status quo is being shaken and maybe there's an opportunity for us to reach beyond the crypto natives. And so we are currently in like a reflecting slash, you know, brainstorming phase. So the crypto natives, uh, they are willing to deal with some user experience problems. Yeah. Um, they just are. They, they're, they're, they come from a culture that is um, accepting of innovation, despite some maybe barrier to entry um, that is present in current crypto. Um, so some of those barrier to entries are, for instance, scalability. Um, the also the time to finality for a lot of these transactions is really slow. Um, from a developer standpoint, a lot of these tools are difficult to understand, especially yeah. if you're used to very on-demand rapid development. Um, it's very difficult to develop uh, rapidly iterate when you're developing Ethereum-based products. When you're comparing to say, you know, edit, run, compile, got a debugger, that kind of thing. When you're dealing with dynamical systems like a blockchain, um, it's kind of interesting to see how um, developers are adapting to making that better. So they build things like Ganache to make the, the tools better, develop local local networks for this. Um, from a perspective of just the users and the developer, adoption seems to be barriered most by user experience. Now you're trying to break out of the crypto native space. Um, what is your strategy for Ethereum for breaking out of the crypto native space, given that the user experience is pretty freaking terrible, even though it's better than anything that came before it. Right, right. Well, I think one thing right now that is DeFi, uh, so decentralized finance, actually does not really suffer too much from the terrible user experience. Like let's take for instance time. So, you know, uh, sure, it can take, you know, a minute or two, uh, it's kind of annoying for the user, but like when you move funds out of a bank to a savings account, sometimes it can take up to a day or two. So here, you know, the, the scalability and, you know, the transaction per second is not that important. Secondly, for the developers, sure, you know, I'm hearing a lot of devs that basically trying to go to mainnet to test a smart contract on the real blockchain because uh, like virtual environments only go so far. And so they go on mainnet and mainnet they have to use real ETH and so they can waste, uh, you know, hundreds of, uh, dollars worth of ETH just to try a few smart contracts and then deploy the right one that will be the final one. But the thing is, even $100 does not cost a lot. Like financial infrastructure can cost millions sometimes. So sure, if we compare it to a blockchain stack in technology like internet that's like fully mature, sure. But right now, the first niche of crypto is DeFi. And so finance is such a slow and expensive industry that compared to them, we are actually not too bad. Like if you want to go into a savings account in crypto, you don't need no KYC in some DeFi applications like Compound. Like if you have ETH, it just takes two minutes to literally turn it into like DAI and then wrap it into CDAI and earn interest automatically. And this takes like 10 minutes. And so yeah, sure. It depends on uh, what we compare uh, the experience to. And so sure, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, room to improve uh, in scalability, in privacy, that's a huge one because it's a public blockchain. So we need private transactions. There's the baseline protocol actually uh, that was just released by the Ethereum Foundation. I think it's with Microsoft, a partnership. And so this is a major, major thing for enterprises. Um, so, and user experience. But user experience, you know, for transaction that take some time, uh, if it's just a minute or two, it's okay. So yeah, that was my point that, you know, if we compare it to the traditional finance model, it's okay. So what is, how is Metacart, what, first off, what is Metacartel? What is this, this organization? And right. how is it helping contribute to these problems and solutions to them? Right. So Metacartel started uh, very technical. It was, 
actually about solving the meta transaction problem. That's what I thought it was the whole time until, until like preparing for this interview. It's like, oh shit, this isn't solely about meta transactions anymore. It's moved on from that. Exactly, exactly. And so it's tied with meta transactions, which like in simple words is that, you know, if the users don't have any ETH, but they know how to use MetaMask, they installed it, like they don't want to go to Coinbase and, you know, wait for KYC and everything. Uh, we want the developers to pay the gas fees on behalf of the users. And so, you know, there was a working group. It was like 2017, I think 2018, and the solution was there. And now you can go on Tabuki or Gas Station Network as a developer, and you can pay the gas fees of the user. And then what happens then is like, well, there was this group of like a hundred people who became friends, like a culture, you know, uh, was emerged from this group and people were friendly to each other and were like, okay, so what do we do now? You know, what's the next step for us? Well, if we care so much about user experience because of the meta transactions, why don't we start a fund that would give grants to all these Ethereum projects? You know, uh, there's ETH Global, that is a hackathon. It's global. It's in uh, many cities worldwide. And there are a lot of, uh, you know, hackers that are amongst the best developers in crypto in the world. And so why don't we, you know, uh, we fund some of the winners and see how they do. And so this is like how MetaCartel leverage uh, its advantage the best is like, we have a very strong network. We have a bit of money. So there is like around a thousand ETH in the DAO. So, okay, that's way less right now, but it used to be, you know, $200,000. And we take the consumer facing, uh, you know, winning hackathon projects and, you know, usually it's people on the side, you know, crypto is very early, doesn't make that much money on the application layer. And so the devs are very excited about this, but sometimes they can't pay rent with this. And so what we say is we come in, we say, hey, you know, you won that hackathon, uh, you are very excited about your idea, let us give you $5,000 so that the next three months you can do a fully fledged product and perhaps then you can raise a seed round. And so we were the useful transition between a hackathon project and a fully fledged company. And so this is like Beta Cartel uh, value add so far is that we take, you know, very projects super early on, you know, people that were not really um, going to raise a seed round or, you know, raise uh, funding and we take them from there. And like a, just a, a, an example is uh, Paul Berg from Sablier. So we funded Sablier when they won, I think, some kind of hackathon like uh, six months, seven months ago. And they were really like not, you know, the, the product was not out. It was purely speculative whether it would work. And actually, Sablier has completely uh, grown up and, you know, met the high standards that they were shooting for. And so it's a great success story. And we have dozens of this. Like there is DeFi's app. Uh, there is, uh, which is like DeFi's app, like take multiple transactions from like, you know, uh, investment strategy and just pull it together into one. And so they make a, you know, they take a fee of a few percent. And now they're starting to have revenue and stuff. And so without, you know, a bit of push, uh, with a bit of uh, grant funding, and also a bit of our social capital, because we are in Ethereum, we are well-known by the community. When we signal that we funded this application, it gets a bit of, you know, a mind share on social media. And so they get visibility uh, additionally to the grant that we give. And so, yeah, I just think that, you know, we fund the applications that, uh, the the traditional uh, venture funding wouldn't do, and we fund it faster as well because consensus and the Ethereum Foundation they can take up to six months. So yeah, we're fast. Uh, we we start small and we experiment. So that's basically what we're talking about. So it's a, it's basically gap funding for proof of concept work for a really good idea to make sure that you can actually prove the concept, and then that would enable somebody to get seed funding for an initial like say. 30, 40, 50 grand to actually get the first, you know, few months off the ground of um, a larger scaled out project, which then leads to further VC funding and a, and a, a actual uh, raise. So that makes sense to me. Um, the question I have to ask is, how are you fueling this fund? What is your ask in return for this? So, you know, nobody gives money for free. What do you get from this? Do you get equity in the in the future organization? Do you get a promissory note that you they will repay? And what, what is this? Is it literally just giving free money? Like, what's up here? Yeah, this is literally giving free money right now. We are not asking for equity. The projects are way too early. But two things. First of all, the way we raise the money, the 1,000 ETH, comes from, you know, applications sometimes that would benefit from, you know, 
new uh, project on the application layer succeed. So for instance, I think we're, we're backed by Gnosis and Matic, which are you know a very famous multi-sig and, and company on the Gnosis side, and Matic is like a layer two solution. Of course, if the application layer succeeds by giving money to a meta cartel long-term, they are winning. So that's the first point is like some people who fund us, they have a vested interest into Ethereum application succeeding. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is that we realized that you know some of the companies we are funding actually are doing not too bad and they are ready for funding. And so that is why uh, I think it was unveiled a month ago, MetaCatal Ventures was created so that the, the deal flow that we have, the amazing companies that we got so early on, we should be the first one, uh, you know, raising for them and believing in them. So when they raise a seed round, we will be there as well. And so this is MetaCatal Ventures. And so right now, yes, we will ask for equity. Uh, actually, not equity, but like a token share. We are only with token because we stay crypto native. It's much easier. Uh, you know, if the project doesn't have a token, it's fine. We can create like a claims token. It's like a new Ethereum standard. And so it's great because uh, so that was that is like the next frontier when we actually make money because this time we take tokens, we take equity into it, and we buy you know either equity into the project or some uh, part of the revenue for X amount of time. So this is our way to finally make money. Right. And right. But right now it's literally free money. You plan yeah. on implementing these things in the future. So is there going to be a lock-in? So if if you get this grant, which is essentially what it is, is a, a grant, um, then you would get first option and they would have to kind of like pre-agree to the terms on the VC or can they go shop around? So it's like, thanks for the grant piece. Exactly. Like, they can they can do that if they want. And we don't like... None of them put a lot of money. This is the power of DAO. It's like, I think the biggest funders that are max a hundred ETH, which is like, you know, a hard K right now, not, not even actually, sorry, 10K. So it's such small amounts, like, sure, like the whole community gathered around and we have some amounts of funding, but it's not a huge loss for everyone. So no, I would say right now, it's literally philanthropic. And we also realistic in the fact that the application layer does not make much money. So we are not expecting, we don't want to stifle innovation. We want the people to be able to create some projects and then we should be able to attract them when they raise funds. But also another point is like some projects we do fund will never really make money. So for instance, like we, so like the DAO UX, for instance, for MetaCartel, uh, we built it ourselves. So it was like a grantee that we funded to build the DAP UX. And now uh, it's uh, that house, it's a bit famous and stuff, but they're not really planning to make any money. It's an open source, you know, uh, Web3 project. So we also fund projects that are useful for the entire community, uh, which are not really having a sustainable path straight away. And that's fine because if things start to get premium, you know, like pet uh, products, it will just like reduce innovation, as I said. So we just want to, you know, spend some money, have some fun. Um, we strive into uh, ramen noodles profitability. So that means we are okay with not having money. And this turns out to be a strength right now because the market is so low. We know how to deal with, you know, a few funding. We don't actually have huge marketing budgets or anything. Uh, we run very low and it seems to work well so far. So actually that's interesting. Interesting. One more thing. Um, so you, you mentioned that your philanthropy, is this a charitable organization? Is that how you've arranged yourselves? Is this, uh, is this through a larger, is this through consensus? I know you mentioned consensus earlier. So is this a way to maybe mitigate capital gains on their end? Or is this, is it, cause this does seem like this would actually play to the bottom line if it were philanthropy too. In other words, it would actually help whatever organization is running this to kind of mitigate some of the market volatility or something like that. Right. So on the legal side, uh, we have not incorporated anywhere. Like, as I like to say, like Moloch DAOs, so the framework for DAOs is incorporated on Ethereum. Uh, and so, yeah, a reason why we are not making money with MetaCartel and neither is Moloch, which is the original Moloch DAO, uh, is because it would be illegal to do so. And we don't want to incorporate uh, something that would make profits where the legal aspect is a gray area. And so this is why MetaCatel Ventures, we partner with Gabriel Shapiro, which is a zero low tech uh, engineer. So he's a smart contract engineer. He's also a lawyer. And so he designed uh, the contract to be so that I think it is an LLC. I'm not extremely involved with MetaCatel Ventures folks, 
but I think it's an LLC right now. And this time it is legal to make profits. So that, yeah, that's also another reason is that MetaCartel giving grants giving DAO is also because grants giving is the first use case and there's not many uh, money in apps right now. And second thing is that, yeah, we just wanted to keep it legal. And, you know, there's a lot of gray areas. Like for instance, can a member of a DAO be anonymous? Or, you know, uh, Moloch DAO, so it doesn't fund Ethereum startups, but they fund Ethereum 2 scaling stuff. They funded Tornado Cash, right? Tornado Cash could be seen as money laundering. And so what happens if Tornado Cash, you know, uh, goes into court? Like, are the Moloch DAO members liable for it? So there's a lot of gray area. And so this is why grants giving is just safer because it's like, you know, we have not made money. And in the eyes of the government, it's probably safer to go that route. And so this is why Metacapital Ventures probably would not fund things like Tornado Cash. They probably will be a bit safer and they've got the LLC done. Uh, they've partnered with OpenLaw, which know what they're doing. They are like uh, smart contract lawyers pretty much on Ethereum, where the LLC uh, takes as finality of a core decision, a blockchain smart contract. So yeah, it's also like we've gradually grown. Uh, the apps have grown. And also we want to be more grown up in the legal area as well. Let me try and rephrase a little bit of that um, based on my understanding of what's going on. Like currently, in my opinion, um, the landscape has a lack of a developer pool and available resources to um, build the useful things that need to be built. And so also like in terms of where we are in terms of overall development across the cryptocurrency space or blockchain space is... Uh, swayed closer to needing more infrastructure. Uh, that's why our UX problem exists because we don't have the appropriate infrastructure to build regular applications that other people that people can use without understanding what's going on. So, because of that, and this like and that like limited supply of appropriate developers who can make the decisions on what should be built and how it should be built, um, you have the infrastructure builders, the people who are building the like the platforms. Uh, that other people can build on for application layer stuff, building something and relying on others to build on top of them for them to be useful and work, right? Look at the DeFi space. Like Maker uh, makes DAI and then uh, gets a lot of value based on all of the companies that build on top of it and make use of DAI through decentralized finance. And so, but the problem is, their available resources need to be focused on making sure die works appropriately and it gives the guarantees of what it has and, and and there's a lot associated with that and so it behooves them to fund something like uh the metacartel DAO to spend time and resources figuring out who the hell should be building on this and funding them to do so uh so that they can then have more use and there's an intrinsic uh, benefit of kind of being locked in by a lot of other different things taking advantage of their technology, right? They become the standard, if you will, if everyone's using them. And so like what I don't understand is why do the people inside of the MetaCartel Car Car spend their time and resources doing this if there's no immediately obvious incentive for them to do so? They're not getting paid to do it. They're not, they're potentially like not, they're not making money from the DAO. Why do you do it? Why do you spend time doing it? So we do it because we believe that, sure, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure missing. Uh, and so it's like, you know, building on top of something that's not existent. So yeah, I get it. it. It seems kind of weird, but the fact that we are so involved into this, uh, the first, so it's like first mover advantage is like we are collecting a lot of knowledge about what it takes to build a startup on ethereum and so that information asymmetry is something that will differentiate us when the application layer will be built like peter pan the summoner of metacatel likes to say like we are not gonna wait for eth2 eth2 is gonna take a long time and you know uh, yeah, sure. If two with sharding with proof of stake, I'm sure will be a thousand x faster. Will be amazing. But if we wait by then, we might you know lose touch with actual consumers. And so we are keeping this alive. So for instance, uh, yeah, sure. Maker and Die, we funded our Die, which redirects interest to other people. 
Like, of course, is there a huge public or market for Ardai? No, but maybe in the future, yes. And actually, Ardai, you know, we are focusing on the consumer directly, and sometimes it actually works. Like, so for instance, with Ardai, we um, there was a project done by the Ardai guys called R Trees, which essentially uh, was Ardai abstracted, but for the consumer, it was. Uh, you know, plant trees with your interest. So you just lock a hundred dollars that you can take back at any time. And once it's locked, it abstracted on compound and die, just like give the interest to trees. And so you can see the number of trees, you know, going up, like streaming, basically like the number going slightly up. And so it's very interesting because that means like, sure, the infrastructure is not there, but let's see some workarounds. Let's hustle a way in to still find ways to connect with consumers, know what they like, and we think it's going to pay off eventually. And um, sure, I get it. It's not mature. It's too early. But I think we learned a ton from it. Like, you know, it's so different from a normal startup. Like, you cannot break things because smart contracts contain real money. Um, you have to be very careful about your updates, uh, the auditing of the code. You have maybe to, you know, cap some smart contracts because of, uh, the amount of money that's there because you don't want to lose too many users' funds. Uh, lots of practices like this that we're not taught by anyone else because we are discovering this. So sure, you know, maybe die is too early and we are building on top of something that's not fully fledged out yet. But when it will be, we will be like the veterans, the people who are passionate enough to do this on our spare time, on our spare time betting that this will go huge. And out of all the projects we are funding, I'm sure some of them will become extremely great businesses later on. I think you so. you, you you summed it up quite nicely when you, the first thing you said. It's domain expertise and information asymmetry, which you're betting will be incredibly useful later on down the line. And yeah. it really, really helps um, people continue to work in the space as it exists today. Like those are all, in my opinion, I mean, I do podcasts for a reason, right? It's not because it's making a bunch of money. Uh, it's a very similar exactly. type thing. Um, yeah, I, I do agree. Like I can share another learning as well is that what we learned is like, yeah, sure. We have almost no money, but our community is so powerful. It's incredible. Like we like basically with the advance of DAOs and smart contracts, pooling funds together, creating a fund has never been easier and it's going to get even more easier as time go by. And so what can differentiate a fund compared to others, it's the power of the community. And so this is what we learned is like, we don't give that much money. We are not really a venture capital VC. We are a social capital VC because we give so much exposure to companies. And in a space where so many projects are scams sometimes, having the Metacartel logo say, okay, you know, this was backed by a lot of people who know that stuff. You know, it's noises, it's uh, a lot of uh, common stacks or many projects, like we know these guys, it's a, it's a stamp of a community and that's very powerful. And we're not the only one to say this. There's also Fabric Ventures that was saying this a long time ago. And now Metacital Ventures is the reason, like the learnings that we got. It's like community is super powerful. Building a community really helps because uh, money is going to get easier to get. So yeah, just another learning. So like the power of community information asymmetry that we collectively gained, collective due diligence on like, you know, Okay, sure. So there's this project. So someone's gonna uh, do an analysis on the technical side. Someone's gonna do the analysis on the distribution side, marketing side, product side. Uh, all of these things we just collectively. Uh, basically, there's like a width of the crowd emerging from the community. That's really amazing. And uh, before, wisdom of the grabs, wisdom of the crowds were only uh, nonprofits. Uh, like Wikipedia, for instance, who's like a massive movement. But now with the advent of crypto and DAOs, we can make money off with all of the crowds. And so this could lead to completely unprecedented companies. That's super exciting to me. Let's talk to you a little bit about our sponsor of the show this week, Status. And today I want to call out uh, the many listeners who are building dApps on Ethereum to tell you how to get your dApp in the hands of all the Status app users. Status App itself is a mobile web three, lets you chat, browse, and transact. There's a lot of cool things about the Status App. Right now, let's talk about the DAP Explorer. Status App uses DAP.PS, that's referred to as DAPs, as an on-ramp to use Ethereum DAPs on mobile. Maybe you've heard about DeFi, wanna check out KyberSwap or DeFi Zap. We'll get some S and and F, load it up in your Status Wallet, and use DAP.PS, DAP.PS, to get DeFi on mobile. 
take your decentralized permissionless finance with you. Already, we're seeing tons of excitement around mobile dApps and Web3. If you've got a dApp, head to dap.ps, check it out, follow the instructions for staking, and get your dApp ranked and featured, or email stake at dap.ps for more information. What's really neat about the Status App Dapp Explorer is that it automatically creates a social channel for your dApp. So you've got a place where Status App users can find and use your dApp, but also you've got the built-in private and secure chat functionality to build a community, do Q&A, FAQ, support, or even meme building. What's that you say? You're not a dApp developer? Why not? Status has a suite of developer tools to get you started building, testing, and deploying Web3 dApps with Embark.io. You know, you see projects that raised a bunch of money in their ICO in 2017, and then nothing. Some crappy wallet, maybe some marketing partnerships, but Status is shipping consumer products, dev tools, and fixing Ethereum and basic peer-to-peer -peer networking and communication protocols. The team is legit. I'm on it. Decentralized and open source. Check out everything they're up to at thestatusnetwork.com or start with the Status app at statusim slash git. That's status.im slash get. Back to the show. So based on that, um, let's, I guess, take it up a layer and talk a little bit about one of your other projects, which is Rocket, Rocket NFT. Uh, this is, this is I think, an example of someone building on top of the things that MetaCartel would fund. What the hell is it and, and why is it there? Yeah, for sure. So actually, MetaCartel was straight up funded like two days after creation by MetaCartel. Like it's also like an example of like how fast it can be. And it's really awesome to see the support of the community for my project. So basically, uh, Rocket started. Uh, so Rocket, the TLDR is that uh, you take a loan against NFT. So we take NFT as collateral and we can issue a loan against it. So it's an alternative to Maker, for instance, Maker Votes. Uh, XCDP maker votes where you put ETH and you get DAI or you put USDC and you get DAI. This time uh, you, you put an NFT from an existing platform. So NFT, there's a varieties of it. There is crypto art on super rare, for instance, like artwork uh, tokenized. There is a uh, virtual estate like Decentraland, crypto voxels, like all these virtual worlds, virtual worlds when um, you can buy some real estate virtually. Uh, the third one is gaming items. So for instance, CryptoKitties, you know, or um, I don't remember all the name, but like Axie Infinities, for instance. So all these uh, game items and then just collectibles, domain names as well. So all these tokens that represent ownership of something, you can take a loan against it. Uh, and so this started because I started a group chat called Undocletterized DeFi because I thought that DeFi was great but it's just annoying to put more money in than out, like in Maker. I think like this defeats the purpose of a loan. And so I wanted to find some other ways to do so. And yeah, by just, you know, uh, trying to mix some primitives of crypto, I found out that if you mix DeFi, so lending, borrowing with NFT, maybe this could be surprising. And Rocket has been quite surprising so far because we've done um, loans of up to 20,000 die against you know uh, virtual estate so it's like a virtual mortgage almost and this was pretty cool so i guess like rocket is basically like a decentralized pawn shop pretty much it's like you put your ownership that you own on ethereum and you get a, some money out of it so yeah this is what it is that's one cool i can see that inc being incredibly useful in the future the problem that I see with it today, maybe not a problem, but the difficulty I see with it today is evaluating NFTs um, and their ability to maintain that value over a specific amount of time. How do you how do you assess risk when trying to assess, when trying to give out loans for something so potentially volatile? Yeah, yeah, I agree. This is a really uh, common question, great question. So. The way we do it is, so one way I can ask the experts, so I am pretty well connected in the Ethereum, especially NFT space, so game collectibles, I can ask, you know, uh, the Axie Infinity guys or something, uh, if I have a real estate loan like Decentraland, there is Metalith, which is a company that does something called the NFT Index, which is literally like the S&P 500, but it's like a bunch of NFT that, are, that you can buy, you can buy a piece of the pie for an amount of money. And so that helps pricing decentralized uh, tokens that we found so far are the best type of NFT. 
to land out on Rocket. Because sure, we also learned some other things like, you know, ENS domains are very hard because we need NFT with high demand and we need NFT that are somewhat stable in price. And ENS domains, one domain name, one unique domain name is very hard because most of the domain name are very low demand, right? Like you don't, someone proposed it like snapshot.eth. I'm like, cool. But like, if snapshot doesn't want to do it, then it's purely speculation. So we need uh, um, NFTs that have some value outside of the pure speculation so that we are uh, less risky in the assessment of it. So yeah, I would say experts. Uh, then I can also have some stats on websites. So for instance, going back to Decentraland because it's such a great uh, collateral type. Um, there's some website just referencing every sale of every parcel and what is the price and what is the average price. So I know for instance, like a Decentraland parcel is between $500 and $900. And so then when someone came up to me with 400 parcels, I was like, okay, well, this has to be, you know, probably $400,000, which is an enormous amount of money but because demand is so low, we are going to value it less because it's a bundle, first of all, and because the demand is really low at very high prices because there are not many whales willing to buy it. And so we got this loan of 400, uh, this loan application of 421 parcels, and we said, okay, let's value it at $100,000 because probably people will buy it at that low price, lower price compared to like the individual. So yeah, it's a lot of, it's, it's not, you know, uh, really rational. Uh, there's a lot of speculation. How do we deal with uh, speculation and volatility? Easy. We just do very short-term loans. So it's six months. So we ask ourselves, okay, is, the plat is this platform going to be around in the next six months? Likely, yes. Six months is pretty short uh, time frame. Uh, another thing we can do is, for instance, NFT that can resist the platform. For instance, uh, crypto art, like a crypto artist which do NFT art, which is pretty much like a, you know, like a very fancy GIF. Well, in this case, they don't care if Super Rare, the platform hosting them shuts down. They can just move to OpenSea or whatever platform. So, wow, okay. So crypto art actually is a bit more durable as an NFT. So we have more confidence in it. But again, you know, art is very rational and really hard to price. So of course it's, yeah, it's not a science, but we're getting better at it. All right. So, uh, you take custody of the NFT um, in, in obviously like, like the bank takes your title for your, your home and it keeps it. But uh, the bank is bound by a, a rule of law that is not present in the crypto space. Um, I pay back this loan plus interest. So let's just say I put a $1,000, I get a $1,000 loan because uh, apparently I can't scrounge up $1,000 and um, for a piece of uh, virtual property in uh, uh, some sort of world, or maybe a crypto kitty or a domain name. And I, I expect to pay that loan back plus interest. And so I, let's just say in the end, I owe like, you know, $1,150. And then I wind up defaulting on this loan. I don't pay it back. Whatever reason, I don't pay it back. You still own this NFT. Yeah, we do. Okay, one, so what do you do with it? Two... Let's say I do pay it back. How do I have a guarantee that you're going to give me the title to this 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 piece of property? Because I don't have that safety guarantee in the crypto space. Um, sure. So one, what happens if we don't pay back? We liquidate it on OpenSea, the entire NFT. And right now, uh, it's actually because we are going the safe route. Uh, the NFT is actually worth more than the loan, so it's a real deterrent for people to default. So hopefully the person repays back. If they don't, we are probably uh, liquidated entirely. This is what we're going to do. We've never done it so far, but maybe, you know, with the crisis right now, we might liquidate, it, we liquidate some. Um, and so, yes, so liquidate on OpenSea. It's a bid. I think it's 14 days after, like, the highest bidder just wins it. Maybe we could do some bundles if, like, the volume is huge. It's, like, every month, you know, we take all the NFTs, we do a bundle of up to 32 NFT on OpenSea, and we mass liquidate it at a huge bundle price so that, you know, it's more liquid. The market will want to buy a bundle of them uh, because there must be some good one in the lot, right? So that's the first question. The second question, which is what if we pay back? How am I sure? Well, we are not sure right now. I am really going the Lean Startup way, which is... Uh, you have still uh, some trust involved. It's not a fully trustless smart contract system, 
But what we are doing to mitigate this is we have a Gnosis multi-sig. Uh, multi-sig, uh, it's a Gnosis safe multi-sig. And actually just like, I think three days ago, they just unveiled the NFT integration. So it was already possible on the smart contract side, but now it's even like a fancy button on the website. And so we have a multi-sig of three of six, meaning that we are we have six accounts. I own two of them. So like this is like full transparency of like the details of Highworks. Uh, I own two of them. So that means like I need one colluder if I want to steal an NFT or like keep it and not transfer it. And so any transfer out of that multi-sig has to get three out of six. So, and the six people are known. They are pretty trustworthy. So it, it is like employee of Aave. So Aave is like a huge boring lending platform on Ethereum. There is Peter Pan, someone of MetaCartel. Um, there is the is main developer. publicly available, that information? It just is. Like somewhere That information, available. no, it is not. I'm telling you right now for transparency, but it is true that we said that we migrated to a multi-sig. So first it wasn't right. First, it was just me on my account, MetaMask, yeah. Rocket. And then I was like, okay, this is starting to be a little bit big. Like, technically, this is kind of annoying. <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of um, how these these projects grow is they, they start with someone, exactly, they yeah, grow yeah. into bigger multi-sigs, and, and then and, eventually and, becomes and then, a balance. Yeah. Exactly. And then we got the, you know, a hard thousand dollar loan. And the dude was like, I am never giving this to you if it's not in a more secure place. So, okay, sure. We, we did a multi-sig. And so... Holding NFT with a multi-sig means that we can receive it, you know, uh, no authorization needed. But when we need to give it back, we need to have an authorization. So it's nice because then, like, there's less, uh, there's more double checking for, you know, if we put the wrong address, that's nice. So first of all, we don't make mistakes. Second of all, well, sure, uh, but you need a, you need people colluding together, and it's less likely than myself, for instance. So. so yeah, that's this. This is a good model for what we have right now, and I understand the lean part, and I'm not trying to criticize. I think you've done it well. I think that makes sense for what the world is right now. But I want to point out a criticism that is a barrier to global adoption in any sort of real financial system. And that is if you and two other people die, all of the NFTs are locked up. Um, yeah. Pandemic it's, being a great example of how that could easily or happen. Or just lose no. your private keys, which is something that can very easily happen. Correct. Right. So yeah. the lack the lack of two three people, meaning you and two others, are you know out of the picture but for this whatever isn't, reason? This isn't a rocket NFT issue. This is a this is a, a fundamental this issue. This is with a multi sig issue. General. Yeah, yeah. And so this is why we have this mess. I'm just pointing out a general issue here. I'm, I'm not trying to criticize again. I'm just laying that out there. No, These are the kind of problems point. we need to solve if we're going to have any sort of adoption in any way. And the only way I can think to solve it is the same way the banks basically solve it, and that's corporations own it. There's a legal system involved. And there's some sort of way to vault and reclaim these keys in a secure way because when they're cryptographically secure, if those keys disappear somehow, I trouble. I don't necessarily agree with that option. I think it's it's a route forward, but um, I would prefer novel cryptography that solves it in a way that doesn't require as many humans. Right. Well, look, recovery options split it up into a thousand pieces and distribute it across the world. Yeah. You need a certain number of those. It's more you like still the, have a very similar same, kind of problem. You know, yeah, it's the same crypto narrative of like the whole purpose of everything we're doing here is distributing power as best we can amongst humans so that one person can't control too much or like too few humans can't control too much. And cryptography is just a facilitator for a lot of that type of stuff. Multisig is an implementation of a certain type of photography that allows us to distribute access control to a a, a, a a subset of a larger set. There's so, better ways yeah. to do this in the future. Right. I think in, so like, okay, Rocket is a pretty simple project. And so uh, actually it is so simple that instead of a multi-sig, we could have set up a smart contract that we actually have on testnet right now. It's just like the volume is not high enough for us to move to a smart contract. But essentially the smart contract solution would be a trustless NFT vault. Just like Maker is trustless, like you know, you, you, you should be able to take your ETH out at any time against your DAI, Maker, there's no human there. And so we could build a trustless NFT vault. Actually, this is what Centrifuge has been doing. So Centrifuge is like a NFT fungibilizer or something. Like basically they <laughs> fungibilize, they, they fungibilize NFT. Uh, that's a word that's a new word NFT vault. so like they take a business invoice and they create an nft out of it that's worth like let's say a five percent discount of the business invoice so like if it's like a thousand dollar 
uh, business invoice. Uh, they can fungibilize it for 950 die, so they take 50 die of profit, and then that person can take the die on maker or whatever. So, uh, sure, NFT vaults make it trustless. That's one solution. But this is because Rocket is simple. And as you said, this is a fundamental fundamental question uh, for all projects. And some projects are more complex than Rocket. And by definition, they still need some humans and some multi-sig. We've seen this recently, right, with the BZX hack. They needed uh, human intervention to pose the contract. Otherwise, the attacker, the attacker were just going to, you know, attack the contract till it runs out of money. So, and if you look at, uh, there's a very great, you know, podcaster slash YouTuber called Chris Black. He's done a spreadsheet of every single information he could find on the main DeFi projects, what the stack, the technical stack is for security, if known, because, you know, uh, being transparent with your technical stack is also poor OPSEC because it's like, okay, now we know that these people can be hacked that way. So, you know, it's weaker OPSEC. So, uh, and we can see that the main DeFi projects actually have all the multi-sig. Uh, and is it the safest way? No. Uh, can we make it more complex to make it safer? Perhaps, for instance, social key recovery, which Argent has done, uh, which is like, okay, you know, one person yeah. dies. Well, that person... <laughs> that it's an person, implementation. It's not my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. So there is social key recovery. Uh, the second option is simply, you know, recovery account. So if no action was taken for a hundred days, move the funds to another account. That's maybe another multi-sig with completely different people. And so then you would need twice as many people to die, which now is a lot of people, a lot of dead people, to to make it weaker. So we can find turnarounds, uh, but like going through the legal system, I'm not too much a fan of because we built Ethereum to fork the legal system, literally. We don't want to go through the normal legal routes. Otherwise, what is the point of blockchain if it's not securing uh, with smart contracts? We still want the on-chain finality and you know ultimate settlement layer. We don't want the government to be the ultimate settlement layer. Ethereum has its own government, though, and it's 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 proven that the the I don't know. This is getting philosophical out there, but. Um... I think it's it's a little. I think there is a middle ground here, and that's what we're actually striving for. And I think this ideal that there will be no human intervention is just bonkers. Exactly. Um, I, I think I the idea that there will be. Well, I guess you kind of did say that, yeah. Um, but the the idea that there will be no legal intervention is all, equally as bonkers. Uh, I, I, I want to make a correction. I think it's, in my opinion, the ideology of Ethereum. For to get philosophical here, is um, legal intervention is an option not a mandatory it's correct it's always, there's it's risk always, associated yeah. with not there's a different oh, of course. risk model of course and that's what and i'm that's... trying to say is that is that the the only way that you're gonna get financial institutions to adopt the decentralized world is to integrate a risk model that is acceptable to them and not the other way around you cannot expect them to come on board with a risk model that is this mm, detached from you know all the things that these corporations are attached to and so it's going to, it, you, we're going to need to diversify our risk models here, essentially. I, you look, I said your system works well. It is fundamentally correct. What you said is absolutely works for what you're doing. However, you know, in the end, um, we're going to want bigger amounts of money. We're going to want bigger things than what we currently have. We're not just yeah. trading crypto kitties. We want to trade houses and, you know, Van Gogh paintings. You know, we want to, we want to, we want to do auto uh, not like airplane parts and pharmaceuticals, watch them flow through the, the supply chain, right? These are all things we're going to eventually want with these kind of systems. And we're not going to be enabled for that unless we also talk about legal compliance. And the diversity of uh, NFTs benefit is really strongest in those cases. I, I really do appreciate the virtual commodities sector. Don't get me wrong. Um, but they're a proof of concept for what we really want, which is to deliver yeah. food to people's homes, medicine to people's homes, um, yeah. improve our efficiency in repairing parts and goods in, in our, in our um, failing infrastructure. Um, these are all the kind of dreams we're looking for. They're not going to happen without a legal risk model also associated with the soup. Uh, what's the word for it? Non-legal risk model. Like, like it's a, it's a tangential model. So I'm oh, yeah. kind of curious how you feel about that anyway. 
I, I completely agree. I think, you know, talking about crypto natives, the reason why I chose crypto native again is to be lean startup style. But of course, the real thing would be derivatives of, of physical assets that could be lent against, right? If you could lend, lend your own house and then uh, as a collateral, gain a million die against it, that would be amazing for most people because you could get the money straight away, way faster than banks, way better rates. Of course, that's the vision. Then, sure, the legal system, I'm not saying, you know, uh, I'm a rebel and I don't care about the legal system. We need to be interoperable with it. I agree. Uh, but there are many solutions we are building right now. So there is Clearance Court, which basically is um, dispute resolution uh, in crypto on Ethereum. There's also Aragon Court doing this as well, when there will be some judges on chain and the majority voting and stuff. I think the huge majority of cases can be resolved on chain by humans and yeah sure for things that take financial regulation like the sec the cftc and the others we can interoperate with some smart contracts like what metacartel ventures or even the lao by open law have been doing which is there is for instance like the example of the dao so there is a dao uh it's a moloch v2 dao but sure the summoner i think has some super admin uh, functions in the smart contract that you know the crypto anarchists would not like, but this is needed for the governance. So we can make some compromise. Compromise. Uh, we can, uh, you know, there's there's a middle ground here for sure. Uh, so if there are some decent interoperability with the government, and if we can find ways to satisfy both both parties, then it's nice. But it's good to try as much as we can to push. I think. The crypto, uh, the crypto envelope as far as we can, because there are a lot of things we can do uh, to save a fund, for instance, like the Gnosis Multisig, they've handled, I think, billions of dollars so far. And we know it's very safe. The code has been audited, battle tested. So should the governments be really worried about people losing? Well, not really. I think if a Multisig uh, is safe enough and secure enough, and there's a lot of signatory people uh, it should be it should be good enough to go, and the government should not really be too uh, risk adverse with it. Well, see, I, I think you both said it yourself, right? Like in the current uh, landscape and where we are on the timeline of what this technology could potentially do, we're not. It behooves us to experiment and try and figure out what we can do with the available technology puzzle pieces in a very open and innovative format, as opposed to trying to constrict it to regulation right now. Uh, because we need to figure out the best way to move forward so that when it does become universally standardized and we have the larger players coming in to start tacking on real money to these things that make incredibly large world impact, it needs to be something that works or at least works at the scale it needs to and gives the proper like security, privacy, auditability guarantees that uh, they require and we want before like be before like really, really like ossifying how it works. And we're not there yet. I think we'd all agree that we're not yeah. there yet. Well, we are getting there though, because the baseline protocol, which I haven't looked too deep into, uh, seems to be really awesome because it's about moving the enterprises, the big institutions to Ethereum mainnet. Because so far, all the private blockchains by big enterprises and companies are kind of useless, in my opinion. Like it's kind of a hot tech, but if you build your own nodes and your own servers, then this is just an encrypted database. And so it doesn't change much, but I get it. It's a proof of concept to then migrate to the Ethereum blockchain, which is what Baseline Protocol has been doing. And I think the killer feature here is privacy. We didn't have privacy before. And so now the enterprise blockchain have a trustless system so that they can put their private data, supply chain information, uh, tracking and everything. And it's, uh, secured by the protocol and it's verifiable and actually you cannot mess with the data anymore uh, which in a private blockchain environment you could still do right like we've seen uh, Steemit I think you know acquired by Tron and then turned over to Justin Sun because he talked to his friends like just a dedicated proof of stake with like 
too few validators and which is the same for private blockchains do not make much sense to me so yeah sure it's we're not there yet but slowly migrating to an open public blockchain with the privacy and the security requirements that they aspire to uh, would be awesome for me because yeah sure it's proof of concept on both ends right uh, same for me my crypto native experiments they are you know very small but at least they work on a public blockchain and on the other end that these people are de dealing with actual stuff that will actually matter but right now it's not really worthy or anything so i hope these two worlds merge together in the coming years we can i the uh what you just said i think could be an, an entirely another podcast um based <laughs> on me, me and colin both have um larger enterprise experience um i've probably sold a lot of my previous views uh based on that experience colin still works and uh I, I say one foot in one foot out but uh i don't know like that that whole conversation is very deep and very long and i think we might want to like have you back on or someone else to to, to flesh it out colin nice. how do you feel about that yeah that's fine uh as long as I could show Ava so that he can see <laughs> that his vision is possible now. But <laughs> Colin, Colin's a, pro, a, a senior engineer for, for Ava Labs, which is the Avalanche project. And I work, oh, at, nice. I, and I work at Status. Nice. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a great way to wrap up. Um, is there any questions that you wish we would have asked you that we didn't before we get to how people contact you? Mm. I would say like, what are you changing due to these events? Because sure, like I don't want to make this podcast too time dependent, but there's kind of a virus right now and it should like touch a lot of projects in the coming year. And so my answer to that potential question would have been, yes, uh, we are kind of changing right now. You know, uh, do people care when they want food and, you know, testing and healthcare? Do they care about lending an NFT? Probably not. Uh, and so this is why we are moving more towards the mainstream, perhaps touching on things that we are used to in crypto that people did not. So remote, managing remote communities, managing remote communities and paying them because it's what Metacritic has done, right? It's like a remote community. We don't pay ourselves, but we pay projects. So this is like managing a remote first fund. I think this experience, however, is useful to people. And so this is what I think we are going to transition to with the financial crisis ongoing and everything is that we are looking to see what in our uh, learnings we can share to people that's useful right now. Because sure, DAO, NFT, all of these concepts are very, you know, the long end vision of crypto. So we're, we're trying to focus on, you know, what's useful today. Right. Yeah. Colin, you got anything else? No, thanks for coming on. I, I, do, I am curious, what, what's got you uh, really excited about the space other than what you're currently working on? What projects have you not mentioned that you think need a good shout out? Mm, a project that needs a good shout out. I would say I'm a big fan of, um, uh, what can I talk about? I would say Dharma. So as I just said, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe da is Dharma too mainstream and like your audience probably knows it, like, you know, it's like abstracted savings account. I feel uh, like we've interviewed Dharma. I'd have to check. I, mean, well, uh, Dharma. I actually got interviewed by Dharma in, I think, 2018 early. Uh, nice. And then I wrote a CDO for them and then got denied my application. Sure uh, well, I um, would say uh, I really like Melon Protocol, which is like you, anyone can do an index fund. Uh, so I would say, yeah, bullish on DeFi. It's like the number one thing for me to right now is DeFi. DAO is great. Uh, NFT is great. But I would say DeFi is the number one thing right now that matters to the world. And so uh, allocating funds perhaps to uh, healthcare emergencies and stuff like this could be very useful. And so do I have a shout out to give? Well, yeah, I would, I would still say Dharma. Then what else? There is Centrifuge who is trying to uh, create a new way to take real assets and issue a loan against it. And I think they're partnering with Maker might be announced soon or it, it's been already announced, but it's kind of uh, open anyway to, to announcements like this. So I would say go check out Centrifuge if you're interested in the FM application there. Awesome, man. That was great. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. <laughs>